Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Renee Rao, and I'll be hosting today's show. Today we present part two of two interviews with Steve Blank, a lecturer at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Steve has been a serial entrepreneur in Silicon Valley since the late 1970s. In the early 2000s, he retired from the day-to-day involvement of running a company. He has been teaching entrepreneurship training ever since. By 2011, he was said to have devised a scientific method for launching high-tech startups dubbed the Lean Launchpad. The National Science Foundation caught wind of this and asked Steve to build a variation for teaching scientists and engineers how to launch startups. In 2013, Steve partnered with UCSF and the NSF to offer the Lean Launchpad class for life science and healthcare. In part two, Steve talks about getting the NSF Lean Launchpad classes going, the evolution of startup companies, and innovation. And now, Brad Swift continued his interview with Steve Blank. In your experience with these scientists and teaching them Are these people self-selected? They're the ones who are anxious and eager, and there are other scientists maybe back in the lab or reluctant, afraid of the process? So so Again, it's personality? Yeah, so this goes back to the comment I made earlier about entrepreneurs being artists. It was the implicit comment I just kind of blew through in the beginning but is important, is that you can't assign entrepreneurship as a job, right? If you really think about it, you can't split up a room. And say, those of you on the left, uh, you're going to be musicians. And those of you on the right, you're working on the assembly line. Like, yeah, WTF. I mean, the world doesn't work like that, right? Entrepreneurship is a calling, just like art, just like music, just like writing. It's something you have to passionately want to do. But much like art, we learned something a couple hundred years ago. That very early on in people's lives, in elementary school and junior high school and high school, we want to have art appreciation. They're not intensive classes, but they're exposure to art that people might not know they're artists. They might not know they have a passion to paint or to sculpt or to write or to entertain. I will contend, because entrepreneurship is an art, we actually need those type of classes early on. Because scientists who didn't understand that not only was their passion to invent and create, they might actually have an equal passion to wait a minute, I actually want to take this thing all the way through and I want to see what happens if hundreds of thousands of people are being affected by this medicine, not just here's my paper in the latest publication. doesn't mean everybody could do that, but it means we've not yet gotten the culture to where we could say, well, is this something that kind of excites you? And I think we're getting better to understand what it takes to do that. Would you have any idea what that would look like, Uh, the kind of exposure that you'd be talking about in grammar school or middle school? Sure. It turns out One of the unintended consequences of teaching the scientists at the National Science Foundation is remember they're professors, almost all of them tenured running labs at universities across the country. And so here they take this class from the National Science Foundation, and about half or two-thirds of them now go back to their own universities pissed because they go, 
how come we're not teaching this? And so what happened is the National Science Foundation asked me and Jerry Engel, who was the head of entrepreneurship at Haas, why don't you guys put on a course through a nonprofit called NCIAA to teach educators in the United States who want to learn how to teach this class? And so we teach the Lean Launchpad for educators. We teach now 300 educators a year. One of the outgrowths of that class was entrepreneurial educators from middle school and high school started showing up. And I went, you're not really teaching this to kids. They went, oh, Steve, you should see our class. And I went, oh, my gosh, this is better than I'm doing. So they'd taken the same theory and they modified the language so it was age appropriate. And so the two schools that had some great programs were Hawkins School outside of Cleveland and Dunn School here in California. And, in fact, they're going to hold their own version of the educator class in June of 2014 for middle school and high school educators who are interested in teaching this type of entrepreneurial education. So I think it's starting to be transformative. I think we have found the process to engage people early and not treat it like we're teaching accounting. You're treating it like we're teaching art. And again, we're still experimenting. I wish I could tell you we got it nailed. I don't think so. I think we're learning. But the speed at which we're learning is, makes me smile. That's great. It is great. The passion of the educators really is exciting. And are you able to teach this remotely so that scientists from around the country don't have to come to you and sort of stop what they're doing? I was teaching the class remotely. It's now taught in person in multiple regions, so that's how we solve that problem. But my lectures were recorded. And not only were they recorded, they were recorded with really interesting animation. So instead of just watching me as a talking head, these are broken up into two-minute clips, and it's basically how to start a company. And it's on Udacity.com. So if you want to see the Lean Launchpad class and the lectures, it's on Udacity.com. It's called EP245. But by accident, we made these lectures public to not only the National Science Foundation scientists, but we opened it up to everybody, and surprisingly, there's now over a quarter million people who have taken the class. I've had people stop me at conferences and have told me that the Arabic translation, which I didn't even know existed, is the standard <laughs> in the Middle East. I had people from Dubai and Saudi Arabia and Lebanon literally within 10 feet go, oh, well, we recognize you. And I went, who are you? They said, oh, Mr. Blank, you are the – and I went – What's going on? I laugh not because it's me, but because this is the power of the democratization of entrepreneurship. I have to tell you a funny story is that I grew up with the entrepreneurial cluster was Silicon Valley. And it's only in the last five years that I've gotten to travel with both Berkeley and Stanford and the National Science Foundation to different countries to talk and teach about entrepreneurship. And my wife and I happened to be on vacation in Prague. And when I really knew the world had changed, as my wife had said, you know, Steve, we're kind of tired of eating hotel food. I wonder if there are any entrepreneurs in Prague. And I went, well, I don't know. You know, let me go tweet. Any entrepreneurs in Prague, you know, looking for a good Czech beer hall? An hour and a half later, we're having dinner with 55 entrepreneurs and Prague Television is there. And they said, Steve, you don't understand. There's like, there's an entrepreneur community everywhere. The only thing we still have unique in the Bay Area is that entrepreneurship and innovation, we've become a company town. That is our product. Much like Hollywood used to be movies and Detroit used to be cars and Pittsburgh steel, while well, obviously there are people who do other stuff, teach and restaurants, but the business, the business of the Bay Area really is entrepreneurship and innovation. While we tell stories about the entrepreneurs, the unheralded part of that ecosystem is that we have equally insane financial people. Why Silicon Valley happened was that the venture capitalists in the 1970s in Boston 
when it wasn't clear whether it was going to be Boston or Silicon Valley to be the center of, of entrepreneurship, the venture capitalists in Boston continued to act like bankers. Venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, they decided to act like pirates, and the pirates won. And so what really differentiates the observation I'll make with that entrepreneurship is everywhere in the world, entrepreneurial clusters only happen when all these things, these components, primarily entrepreneurs, but a heavy dose of risk capital capable of writing not only small checks, but large checks and doubling and tripling down on startups. That's why you have the Facebooks and the Googles and the Twitters around here. You also have a culture, which people don't understand. In the 1950s and 60s, people came to San Francisco and Berkeley to live an alternate personal lifestyle. But they were heading 30 miles south to have an alternate business lifestyle around Stanford. And it was this kind of magic combination of great weather, ability to do things in both business and your personal life that you couldn't anywhere else. These cultural phenomenons actually were underrated and underappreciated until a very smart professor at Berkeley, Annalise Saxinian, wrote a book called Regional Advantage that actually described a lot of these things and opened my eyes about uh, why this region actually won. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Steve Blank is our guest. He's a former entrepreneur and current lecturer at the Haas School of Business. In the next segment, he talks about how startups have changed since he first began in Silicon Valley in the 1970s. So has entrepreneurship then changed as a result of that? What really happened was the harmonic conversion of a really interesting set of events. One is is that if you think back on how startups worked in the in the golden age of Silicon Valley in the 70s and 80s, to build a startup required millions, if not tens of millions of dollars, not to run it, but just to start it. You needed to buy computers, either mainframes or mini computers, and then workstations. You needed to license millions of dollars of expensive software. The only venture people were either in Boston or Silicon Valley, and they lived on Sand Hill Road and nowhere else. And therefore, it was kind of a formal process, and the cost of entry was literally millions or tens of millions of dollars. There was no other way to get computing. There was no other way to get money. The second is we had no theory about startups. That is, there were no management tools at all. But what happened, starting out of the rubble, actually, of the last Internet bubble, things changed in technology in a way I don't think people outside the technology business appreciate at all. Probably the biggest one was actually generated by Amazon. It turns out Amazon created something called Amazon Web Services. And if you're a consumer, all you know is Amazon maybe for Kindle and for sure for their books or their website. But if you're a programmer, Amazon has become the computing utility. You no longer have to buy computers. From your laptop, you literally log in to hundreds of millions of dollars of computers, and you have access to the world's largest computing resource ever assembled for pennies for pennies. And you don't need any storage. You're storing it all online and all the computing. So number one, Amazon Web Services truly turned computing hardware and software into a pennies per gigabyte and MIPS, etc., in a way that was unbelievable 10 years earlier. Two is that changed the cost of entry of an early stage venture. You no longer needed millions of dollars. In fact, if you were a smart entrepreneur, you could start on your credit card. And if you didn't have your credit card, maybe some friends and family. And that started a very different wave because it changed venture capital. It used to be there were either doctors or dentists or there were formal venture capital firms like Kleiner Perkins and Mayfield and Sequoia. But the fact is that now, after a ton of entrepreneurs could start on their credit cards, they still didn't need $20 million. Maybe eventually they did, 
but they could just take $100,000 or half a million dollars and get pretty far. And that created a new class of super angels or angel investors that just never existed before, kind of this intermediate level. And so venture capital changed. And also with that change, it changed where they could be located. You no longer had to be located to be an investor in New York, Boston, or San Diego. That amount of capital could be available in London or Helsinki or Estonia or, or in Beijing. Third is, and I will take credit for some of this, the invention of a new way to look and how to build these startups. It used to be that if you were building a physical product, you would do something called a functional spec. You'd get requirements from a customer. you build a specification. And then you'd make an early version of the product called alpha test, maybe a less buggy version called beta test, which foist on some poor unsuspecting customers. And then you'd have a party at something called first customer ship. And that process was called waterfall development. And from beginning to end, typically took years. An insight in the software business, and Toyota had it even earlier, is that we could build products differently. We could build products incrementally and iteratively, and that's called agile engineering. And for startups, how you want to build your products is agilely and and iteratively because almost always what you believe on day one are all the customer features that they need. It's a pretty safe bet. You're not a visionary. You're actually hallucinating. And that most of the features you would historically have built in go unused, unneeded, and unwanted. But if, in fact, you could actually test intermediate versions of the product iteratively and rapidly on those customers with a formal process, which I invented, called customer development, those two hand-in-hand change the speed and trajectory of how startups get built. And so now you see these startups coming out of nowhere and getting acquired in three years, but they have tens of millions of customers. Where did that come from? Well, in the old days, we'd still be writing the software or building the hardware. Spectrum is a public affairs show on KALX Berkeley. Our guest is Steve Blank, a lecturer at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. In the next segment, Steve talks about his current work trying to understand how innovation thrives in some companies and fails in others. If I can, the unattended consequence of all this stuff, remember this whole lean startup stuff has become a movement by itself. Harvard Business Review contacts me and says, Steve, every large corporation is now desperately struggling how to deal with continuous disruption in the 21st century. That is, all the rules that worked in the 20th century, you know, be number one in market share, you know, like be number one and two. I mean, all the Jack Welsh rules, you follow those, you'll be out of business in seven years. Why? You know, globalization, China Inc., Internet has made consumers flighty, very little brand loyalty. Pricing is almost transparent. Cost of starting a new business is infinitely lower. All the things that made you strong in the 20th century as a corporation – are no longer true. Some of them are obviously, but not really. And so every large corporation are trying to relearn a set of rules. And guess where they're looking for? They're looking at startups of how do we be as innovative as Apple. As that, that is, the models are now Silicon Valley and other technology companies. And so my article, The Lean Startup Changes Everything, became the cover of the Harvard Business Review in May 2013. What was interesting is that I started getting calls from executives whose titles I had never heard of before. It turns out almost every large company is now appointing a VP of corporate innovation. I had never heard of that. You know, what's that? And when you go talk to them, I've talked to a bunch of them now, you find out that they're all struggling to solve this continuous disruption problem 
by trying to build innovation inside the DNA of large corporations, the U.S. and overseas. And the first sign of companies trying to do that is appointing somebody, typically as a corporate staff person, to have some kind of internal incubator. I could politely say that's a nice first step, but it really doesn't solve the problem. It actually just points out what the problem is. And can I digress for another mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 10 seconds? It turns out that the problem that corporations are having is not a tactical organizational problem. The things I described, the globalization, the effect of the Internet, etc., are just strategic problems that every corporation is facing. The last time companies faced something this major was in the 1920s. Uh, U.S. corporations grew from small mom-and-pop businesses from the 1870s to the 1920s, and they kind of came up with a form of organization called functional organizations, meaning you had a head of sales, a head of marketing, a head of manufacturing, but by function. That was the only way companies were organized. But by 1920s, some U.S. corporations spanned from New York to San Francisco. And so there was a geography problem. Here you had a head of sales trying to run multiple geography. It wasn't even the same time zone. And some companies like DuPont had a different problem. While they also had geography problems, DuPont made everything from explosives to paint. But you only had one marketing group and one manufacturer. How, how do you manage that? And for about five or six years, four corporations, DuPont, General Motors, Sears, and Standard Oil, understood they had a strategy problem and attacked it by playing with the structure of the company, meaning how the company was organized. And they all finally decided that they were going to organize in a radically different form called divisions. Instead of just having functions, they would actually break up, like, for example, General Motors into the Buick division and Oldsmobile division or whatever, or for DuPont, the explosives divisions and the paint division, and on top have a thin layer of corporate staff, but now have a company organized by divisions. First change in 50 years in how companies were organized. Fast forward 40 years later, the third form of corporate organization emerged called matrix organizations, where you start with a functional organization, but now all of a sudden we would have specific projects pop up. Gee, I want to work on the new F-86 fighter. Well, I have an engineering group, but let me put together a team that I could pull out of engineering and pull out of product management and put together for a temporary amount of time, and then they'll go back into their functions and then be pulled out again. But that's it. Those are the only three forms of corporate organization. I'll contend that we're facing a common strategy problem that is not solvable by just pasting on VPs of innovation. I believe it's solvable by rethinking on the highest possible level is do we need a fourth form of corporate organization? And I got to tell you, I got the answer. But I'm not going to tell you now. Okay. Is this sort of then turning all the operations research that's been done over the past, you know, since World War II? That was when it seemed to be salient. Is it on its ear now? Is this uh, so? If you really think about what we built for the last hundred and fifty years, is corporations were the epitome of operational efficiency through operations research, the output of business schools. I mean, all our stuff has had to be continuous execution, driving to the lowest cost provider and outsourcing and all that stuff. That's great, but you're going out of business. In fact, companies that do that, I will contend, have a much shorter lifespan than companies that now do continuous innovation. That is, if you think about the difference between Amazon and Netflix and uh, Apple when Jobs was alive, 
versus standard U.S. companies, the distinction was they were continuously innovating, relentlessly innovating, and it was not some department that was innovating. That's a big idea. It was the entire company was innovating, yet they were making obscene profits. So clearly there are some models of some companies who have figured out. And in fact, HP in the 70s and 80s had figured out how to do it, and then they lost the formula. I think we now actually have a theory, a strategy of how to do that and some really specific tactics, how I know we could do this in detail for U.S. corporations and corporations worldwide. But I want to start at the U.S. And we're going to be talking and writing about that in the next year. Right. So that's what you're actively working on. Oh, actively working. And um, Hank Chesborough, inventor of open innovation here at Haas Business School, and with Alexander Osterwalder, inventor of the business model Canvas, all have been part of some of these discussions. You know, I just get smarter by hanging out with much smarter people. And I'm not the only one who's thinking about this. There are lots of very smart people trying to crack the code. And at the same time, companies are raising their hand, and the symptom of them raising their hand is they're appointing VPs of innovation. And we're like saying, yeah, you know, here's what we – oops, it doesn't quite work, and finance has different rules, And but wait a minute, I'm trying to be innovative, but the HR manual doesn't allow me to hire people. No, legal says I can't use our brand here. So what you're really finding is that it's not an org problem. It's not anybody's trying to be mean. It's that what we're missing is the CEO and board conversation is, oh, my gosh, maybe we need to get – innovation in every part of the company, not by exception. That's the idea I'll telegraph for now. And how do you do that without affecting current profits? And it's quite possible because, again, there are these experiments of companies that are insanely profitable who've done this. Now can we just make it teachable and doable by other corporations? And the answer is yes. We're going to go do that. Do you see the pace of technology accelerating? Absolutely. I think we're in the golden age of both technology and entrepreneurship. You ain't seen anything yet. I'm still constantly amazed. Sitting here smiling when you say that is uh, why I still love to teach is that, you know, I get to see my students come up with things. You hear the 400th hotel automation package or the whatever, but, you know, then you see something in drones or 3D printing or you could do what with your phone? You can make it turn on or your password through, you know, just things that are unimaginable. And then you watch um, the next generation of Steve Jobs. You know, the current version of Silicon Valley is Elon Musk, who single-handedly is about to obsolete the automobile industry and at the same time just wrecking havoc in the space launch industry single individual who had, by the way, zero qualifications to do any of those. Congratulations. Welcome to entrepreneurship. He had the will to be disruptive, and he understood that the technology was about at the edge of being able to do what he did. That's how we got the iPod and the iPhone. Or else in a perfect world, Nokia would still have 89% market share. If I was General Motors and Ford, I'd be really concerned. Steve Blank, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. Thanks for having me. If you would like more insight into Steve Blank's ideas, go to his website at steveblank.com. As Steve mentioned, the Lean Launchpad course is available on udacity.com. To learn more about the NSF Lean Launchpad curriculum, search for NSF iCore. If you're local to the Bay Area, go to bayicore.com. If you're interested in startup appreciation materials for educators, go to nciaa.org slash LLP. Spectrum shows are archived on iTunes U. We've created a simple link for you. The link is tinyurl.com slash calexspectrum. 
And now, a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Brad Swift joins me for the calendar. California's coastal waters are home to one of the four richest temperate marine biotas in the world. The California Academy of Sciences will be holding a series of lectures and events to explore this incredible diversity of life. They will explain what makes this region so productive and why it needs to be protected. On Saturday, March 22nd, from 9 to 11 a.m., a variety of speakers will consider the impacts of human activity on the local marine ecosystems and the establishment and efficacy of marine protected areas. They will also discuss how diversity is monitored in California's oceans and which areas will need to be most closely scrutinized for future impact. For more information on the March 22nd event, please visit calacademy.org. On Monday, March 31st, University of Maryland professor of human development, Nathan Fox, will give a lecture on his recent studies on whether experiences shape the brain and neural circuitry for emerging cognitive and social behaviors over the first years of life, something that many developmental scientists take for granted. Fox's study, the Bucharest Early Intervention Project, is the first randomized trial of a family intervention for children who experienced significant psychosocial neglect early in their lives. A group of infants living in institutions in Romania were recruited and randomized to be taken out of the institution and placed into family foster care homes or to remain in the institution. He then followed up with the children several times over the next eight years and examined the lasting effects of the deprivation and which, if any, interventions were successful in assuaging the harmful effects. The free public talk will be held on March 31st from 12 to 1.30 p.m. on the UC Berkeley campus in room 3150 of Tolman Hall. On Wednesday, April 2nd, UC Berkeley's Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management will present a speech by Chris Mooney, a journalist who has written several books on the resistance that many Americans have to accepting scientific conclusions. His lecture will be titled The Science of Why We Don't Believe in Science and will examine the reasons behind Americans' disinterest in scientific solutions to the world's problems. The free public lecture will be held on Wednesday, April 2nd at 7 p.m. in the International House Auditorium of UC Berkeley. Here at Spectrum, we like to present news stories we find particularly interesting. Brad Swift joins me in presenting the news. UC Berkeley professor Dr. Richard Kramer and his research team have been able to temporarily restore light sensitivity to mice missing a majority of their rods and cones. In healthy mammals, the eyes detect light with specialized photoreceptor cells or rods and cones and then transmit a signal to their optic nerve cells which eventually communicate with the brain. Dr. Kramer and his team explored the effects of a similarly light-sensitive molecule known as DENAQ in healthy mice and mice with a degenerative disease that caused them to lose nearly all their rods and cones. After dosing the mice with DENAQ, the mice were exposed to lights and their optic nerve activity was measured via electrode arrays. The diseased mice showed strong light sensitivity. The team next examined a small number of animals in light and dark conditions to test whether the sensitivity conferred any perception of the light in the diseased mice. The injected mice were better able to form an association between a light stimuli and electric shock than those in the control group. 
While millions of humans suffer from similar degenerative retinal conditions, definitive conclusions on the broader therapeutic and deleterious effects of the molecule DENAQ are still years away. In a recent study published in the journal Biomaterials, UC Berkeley researchers were able to illuminate the transmission route of a common infection. Staphylococcus aureus is a bacterium that commonly infects patients who've had surgeries involving prosthetic joints and artificial heart valves. Staph aureus's ability to adhere to medical advices is key to its virulence, as once introduced to the body, it can cause severe illness. UC Berkeley bio and mechanical engineering professor Mohamed Mafraud and others in his lab examined how the clusters of Staph aureus were able to adhere so well to certain nanosurfaces, as well as the type of surfaces that increased or decreased the bacteria's ability to cling. They quickly found that while Staph aureus can adhere to a variety of flat and curved surfaces, it does seem to have a preference for certain structures, including a tubular pillar where the bacteria was able to partially embed itself within holes in the structure. Professor Mafraud expressed hope that the improved understanding of these preferences could allow the design of medical devices built to attenuate bacterial adhesion while escaping the need to chemically damage the bacteria to prevent transmission. The music heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. Thank you.